Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we continue from the life of Joseph as our friend Hannah brings us a challenging message from a challenging part of the story. We ask ourselves whether or not this story even fits in the greater story of Joseph. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Hannah. Good morning, South Harbor. My name is Hannah Stevens. I work at Western Theological Seminary, and my husband and I attend here. I don't know how to make this bigger. Ah, figured it out. Um, We attend here with our kids, and sometimes I get to preach, which I love. So thanks for having me. Um, Today, we have a text that I assure you I would not have chosen to preach on. Um, We are going to look at Genesis 38. We have been in a series on Genesis since January. We're going to be in it all year. And for those of you who know, um, Genesis 38 is the story of Judah and Tamar. Um, Again, probably not one of my top 10 passages to preach on. Maybe not even in top 100. If you don't know yet, you will as we read it. (laughs) However... As is often the case with texts that I don't really want to look at, that feel a little awkward, or just have something that I'm like, I just don't know what to do with that. Um, When I dig into it, I often discover that these are the texts that have the most compelling thing to say to me, and maybe what I most need to hear. And for me, that's what I discovered in this text. So I am actually very excited to dig into Genesis 38 with you this week. And before we get into the text, I have one more thing to say. Um, We've called this uh, week an awkward commercial break um, because many very smart scholars, smarter than me, who I highly, highly respect, will say Genesis 38 should be read separate from the Joseph story. And it's oddly kind of thrown in there. Um, And they say this because we started the Joseph story last week in Genesis 37. Um, We meet Joseph, his dad loves him more than the other brothers, they're very jealous about it, they decide to kill him. Um, Instead, they decide to put him in a cistern and then sell him off, and they dip his garment in blood and bring it to their father and say, Um, we found this, what do you make of this? And he concludes that Joseph has been killed um, and grieves. And then we have Genesis 38, which seems like it totally shifts gears to this story of Judah and Tamar. And then in 39, we're gonna pick up the story of Joseph in Egypt. So again, it feels like this doesn't belong here, and many people think it doesn't belong here. But I'm just gonna lay my cards on the table and say, I think it does. I actually don't think that this is out of place, and I think it has something really important to tell us in the whole Joseph story. So I'll let you make your own mind up at the end of this, but give me an opportunity to say why I think actually reading it in light of the bigger narrative of Joseph helps us to get at the depth of this story. 
So, from the book that we love, Genesis 38. And for those of you with children in here, I apologize for the questions you might get after this. We're going to read almost the whole chapter, but it's riveting. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalim named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth still to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur. We just skipped a whole bunch of years here. His firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adolamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend to Adolamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I did not find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out 
and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Ah, sorry. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. This is the word of the Lord. You can see why maybe I wouldn't have chosen this passage to preach on. But let's see what's there. So when we come to a text, there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can go about exploring it. Um, we, you know, do the initial reading, maybe read through it a few different times, and then there's kind of different angles that we can play with the text and questions that we can ask. We do a lot of this here at South Harbor. So some of the ways are, we can look at like the moral. What's the lesson of this text for us? We can talk about the history. What's happening at the time that this text place takes place? What's the significance of those events? We can look at the geography. We do this a lot. What else took place in those places? How might that impact how we understand the story? We can also talk about, like, what does this text tell us about God? And what does this text tell us about people? I think these are all really helpful questions to ask. And I, I actually think as many different angles that you can look at a text um, as possible gives us the richness of the text. It's part of why a whole bunch of different sermons could be preached on the same text. It's part of why you can come back to the same scripture that you've experienced before and see something entirely new. And there seems to be no end to the depth of scripture. There is an approach that I want us to use today that I think is going to be particularly helpful in looking at this story. Um, So an additional angle, angle that I want to talk to you about. And that is the literary approach. Um, In order to take this approach with scripture, you have to have a very high view of the authors of scripture and the role the Holy Spirit plays in crafting scripture. And we've done this before, actually, in the intro to this series on Genesis, we talked about the art of the literature of the creation narrative. And we looked at the intentionality there. And I think if we use this tool to look at what if What if Genesis 38 belongs there? It might help us to ask some new questions about it. So one way into this approach, um, I'm gonna just ask you to trust me this week, um, is to do something that my uh, seminary professors would call putting scripture on its feet. Um, Acting out the scripture to get a sense of what's actually taking place. Now, I realize what chapter I just read, we're just going to act out the second part, okay? Um, And I have asked uh, Jared and Skylar to come and help me. They're going to be my Judah and Tamar. But I need three more brave souls to come on stage with me. And I will say, one of you will have to have a speaking part, but you'll repeat what I say, and the other two don't have to talk at all. So first, someone willing to come up and repeat what I say. Yes. Thank you. And two more that you don't have to talk. You just get to take Tamar to her death. Yes. One more. 
We can do this, South Harbor. I know we can. Jared's just going to call you out right here. All right. It, you stood up, so you have to now. <laughs> all right, yeah, give him a round of applause. I know this is... All right, you are going to stand here with Jared slash Judah. Again, you don't have to speak, but when he sends you to burn Tamar, I'd like you to come and get our Tamar. Thank you, Skylar. And lead her. Remember, you're the guards, so... Be careful with her, but also firm. Um, lead her here. This is going to be the spot in which she's going to be taken to be burned. Um, and you are going to be my messenger, okay? So you're going to find out that Tamar's pregnant. And when I read that part, you're going to go tell Judah about it. You are also going to be the one to send Tamar's message to Judah. So when she um, says, you see these items? Do you recognize them? I'd like you to go over to Judah and present them to him. But you don't actually have to say the line. We're going to have Skylar say it, okay? All right. Um, your motivation. Just, yeah, right? As a good director would. Um, for the guards and for the messenger, you are all about pleasing Judah, okay? Judah is the one you want. Judah, have your favor. There you go. That's right. Judah, Tamar is a nuisance to you. You don't want to give her to your son because you're afraid that he might die as well. Um, but you don't know what to do with her. And so you've just kind of sent her off to her father's house and you're hoping that it just resolves itself. Okay? Tamar, you are pregnant. I see that. <laughs> with what turns out is going to be two babies. And you're in a pretty vulnerable situation here. <laughs> because you don't actually know what Judah's going to do. Are we ready? All right, this is going to be great. <laughs> All right, we're going to pick up the story. Uh, where are we picking up the story? Okay. Um, at... 24, so 38, 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. <laughs> As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. <laughs> Go ahead, Tamar. I, sorry. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, Shh. 
This is ad-libbing here, guys. <laughs> she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her, my, give her to my son, Shella. And seen. <laughs> Judah and Tamar. You want to grab that mic? Just really quick. We did not rehearse this, by the way, if you can tell. Um, you did great. If you would just respond to what did it feel like, both of you, to play your roles? There's no wrong answer. What did it feel like to be Judah? Uh... It's weird to sentence your friend to death. Just, yeah. Um, and to just think about, I mean, I don't know, I can't put my head in that space, right? This is not a thing that, like, we mm -hmm. think about happening in our culture, knowing that contextually this is a thing that happened in their culture. It's hard to, like, put yourself in the shoes, even with the good, excellent, like, motivation talk you gave I, and some of these other things, so. All right, thank you. What was it like to be Tamar? Um, I would say I'm trying to put myself as this woman who, you know, has just been struggling and then, I don't know, just, I guess, one, not being noticed by Judah, so that kind of felt really bad, mm -hmm. um, and then being told I'm going to be burned with <laughs> Not your babies, favorite so thing. So that felt yeah. even worse. Um, but I don't know. I felt there was, like, a sense of embarrassment on me, like, being hmm. publicly you know, displayed to everyone as this awful person and where it's like all the shame is on me, but like where's the shame for Judah kind of thing? Yeah. So um, that's where my mind went. Thank you. Again, round of applause. All right. I do that in part because it's super fun, but also because I think sometimes we can read through scripture and just miss it. We read through it and we don't realize the drama of what is happening. I mean, a woman pregnant is being sent out to be burned. And we don't actually know what Judah is going to do. We know that Judah is like the father and he doesn't know and there's this surprise reveal at the end. But he could have decided to keep covering it up. He did it before with Joseph right? There's drama in this moment, and something significant happens with Judah. And if we just read right along and keep going, we might miss it. So I want us just slow down and look at this as real people with decisions to make. So I want to propose that question again. What if this isn't an awkward commercial break? What if Genesis 38 belongs right where it is? So I'm gonna ask you just to like, pretend with me that we think that's true. That Genesis 38 belongs in the Joseph narrative. Then what might we notice? The first thing that we might notice is Judah. Because Judah is a character that we've seen before. He's been there all along, and we're gonna see him again. Judah is the fourth son of Leah. He's the one where Leah finally decides she's gonna stop trying to seek the approval and attention of her husband and turn towards praising God. Judah is going to flee with his family from his grandfather, Laban. He's gonna stand before Esau with his brothers and his mother 
in front of the beloved Rachel and Joseph, and he's gonna feel the fear of the adults around him. And then he's gonna watch his mother be secondary to her sister, and him and his brothers be secondary to Joseph. And that's gonna be how he's gonna grow. And in Genesis 37, he will be the one to say, let's not kill Joseph, he is our brother after all, let's profit off of him. Let's sell him, which of course is what happens. And then he maybe even leads the way, but is certainly present when they go to their father with the garment dipped in blood and say, see if you recognize this. We found it. You might recognize that Judah was a character in the story and all along. The other thing we might recognize is the parallel stories of a grieving father. Kind of. In chapter 37, we see Jacob grieving hard for Joseph. He grieves and grieves, and it says all his children, including Judah, try to comfort him, and he will not be comforted. He refuses to be comforted. He says, I will go down to the grave in my mourning, in my grief. I will go down to Sheol. I will grieve until the day I die for Joseph. And then, in the very next chapter, we see Judah lose two sons, and there's not a word about his grief. It's actually a very practical storytelling. If we're to pay attention to the narrator and how the narrator is telling this story, there are some very interesting things to pick up on. The narrator's just described the grief of Jacob and goes on to tell in quick succession all these years and very practical steps of Judah's life. He goes down away from his brothers. He finds a woman and marries her. She's not even given a name. Now think about this. We know that the narrator can be a little bit more poetic. We know, um, think of Jacob. Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel, but it felt like a day because of his great love for her. Judah, no name for the wife. And then he has these three sons, and two of them die, not a word about his grief. Like in great literature, sometimes what's not said in scripture is just as important with what is said. We have this very practical, kind of calculated, seemingly unfeeling story of Judah. The only word that we get about maybe what's going on for him is he's afraid for Shelah. So he sends Tamar away. He seems to have no feeling about Joseph, his father, his wife, his children, Tamar. We get a pretty cold and detached version of Judah here. And the third thing that we might notice, that's all right, we don't need that. The third thing we might notice is this idea of going down, down, down. It's repeated a few times. Uh, Joseph goes down to Egypt. Uh, Jacob will not stop grieving until he goes down to his death. And then the next line is um, Judah going down away from his brothers. 
Now, some of that is geography, but some of it is, is this idea of departing, of going away, and maybe going away where you don't want to go. That's certainly the case with Joseph and with Jacob, but I think it might be the case with Judah too. In any case, we get the sense that while Joseph is being taken away from his brothers and separated, Judah is as well. The narrator puts these in rapid succession. While Joseph is going down to Egypt, Judah is departing from his brothers and going off to settle away from them. For whatever reason, he's separating out around the same time. This kind of through line of departing. The other thing we'll notice if we consider that maybe this belongs where it is, is there's a parallel um, story that takes place, a parallel scene that has a ton of similarities from 37 to 38. So let's look at this scene from 37. This is when the brothers have dipped the garment, Joseph's garment, in blood and brought it to present before their father. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Notice they don't outright say, we think Joseph is dead. They present this evidence and let their father make up his own mind. And then we have the scene that was so beautifully acted out on stage in 38. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Do you see the parallel? These garments or these things that you wear are being presented as evidence and saying, do you recognize these? And in English, we have the, the phrasing, see if you recognize or examine it to see. They're translated differently. But in the Hebrew, it's exactly the same. Hakar not nay. We found this, examine it, hakar nay, to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it, vayakera. And then in, the, in 38, see if you recognize it, hakar nay, whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them, vayaker. It's the same word with a different form in the second. And the first word is the exact same form. If you look at this in the Hebrew, these stories right next to each other have a parallel. They are a very similar action. And this idea of recognize is actually gonna be repeated through the Joseph story. When the brothers come to Egypt, Joseph will recognize them and they will not recognize him. It's repeated a few times in the text. Um, Robert, Robert Alter writes about this that this is a formula that's being used. The formula was for an act of, the first use of the formula was for an act of deception. When the brothers, the sons, bring the garment dipped in blood, do you recognize this, Jacob? The second use is for an act of unmasking. Tamar bringing it to him and saying, do you recognize this? Now notice Judah is in both of those. Once being the deceiver, and then the second time having, it, having him realize that he was deceived, having it played back on him. I wonder for Judah, when that's presented to him, does he remember that moment with his father? Do you recognize this? 
I told you that a lot of modern scholars will say Genesis 38 doesn't belong in the greater story. Um, But if you go back 1,500 years, you'll find rabbis who think it does. They say this. The Holy One, praised be, he said to Judah, you deceived your father with a kid by your life. Tamar will deceive you with a kid. Remember the goat and the goat? It goes on to say, the Holy One, praised be, he said to Judah, uh, he, can you go to the next one? You said to your father, Hakerne, by your life, Tamar will say to you, Hakerne. Maybe these do belong together. And I will say that even with the similarities between 37 and 38, we could maybe still say, this is a weird story that doesn't fit. If it weren't for Genesis 44, because Judah is going to come back into this story in an entirely different way than we've ever seen him yet. What happens, we're gonna get into the whole Joseph story, but we're just gonna follow the through line of Judah today. So Judah and his brothers, they're starving because there's a famine in the land, and at this point, Joseph is in charge in Egypt, and Jacob sends them to go get food. And they go down, and Jacob, uh, Joseph recognizes them, and he throws them in jail for a couple days, <laughs> and then sends them home, keeping Simeon in jail, jail, and saying, do not come back without your younger brother, Benjamin. He sends them back. Jacob says, no, I'm not sending, sending Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not gonna do it. We're just gonna stay here. And then they get hungry, <laughs> and he says, fine, Take Benjamin, go down to Egypt, and get us grain so that we don't starve. So they go, and there's this weird feast with Joseph, and he keeps having to leave the room because he's breaking down, being in the presence of his brothers. And then he sends them back with grain, and he asks his servants to put his cup in this, into the bag of Benjamin. And so he does, and then he sends his servants to go arrest them and say, how dare you steal the cup of my master? And they say, no, no, we didn't do that. You can check. And of course, they lower their bags, and it's found in Benjamin's bag. And then we get this scene. In 44, starting in verse 16, what can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. 
One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you'll bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return to his, with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. This is a different kind of Judah than we've seen. The narrator presented kind of a callous and disconnected man. And he has almost all the same reasons to hate Benjamin that he had to hate Joseph. I mean, in this story, Jacob is still favoring Benjamin. Jacob essentially says to Judah, I cannot live if something happens to Benjamin. You go. If you die, I'll be okay. I can't lose Benjamin. Judah knows it. He has every reason to hate Benjamin in the same way that he had of Joseph, other than maybe the bragging. He's still the preferred son. And you know what? He has caused grief to his father before. He stood there with the garment dipped in blood and showed it to Jacob. He watched what that did to his father and said nothing. This is a different kind of Judah. He has softened. And I think we are to understand why he is able to stand in front of Joseph and offer himself in place of Benjamin because of Genesis 38 because of that confrontation with Tamar and what that moment does to Judah. 44 happens because of what happens in 38. It changes him. And this is the moment that breaks Joseph. The very next verse is when Joseph cannot take it anymore and he says, I am your brother. It turns the narrative, it turns the story. I think a really clear invitation and an easy place to end this would be, so, you know, when someone confronts us with our guilt, we should probably own up to it, right? If someone is like, hey, do you recognize these? And our guilt is on display, we should, yes, and yes. I think that's an invitation of this text. But I think it's a little more complex than that. Because one, one of the things that we see in Judah in this moment is not just that he owns up to it. He does. Um, but he also just stops. He stops trying to cover up what he's done. He stops trying to hide. He lets it kind of be out in the open. She is more righteous than I. And here's the thing. 
you and I, we have more tools than ever before to curate our image and present ourselves to the world the way we want to be, the way we want to be seen. We have more opportunity to hide, to cover up the things that we don't want people to see, and to just show, you know, the best versions of ourselves. And increasingly in the US, we're more and more lonely, we're more and more isolated. I wonder if an invitation of this text is to say, maybe we need to stop covering it up. Maybe we need to be a little bit more honest with each other of how all the ways that we're flawed and not perfect. Maybe an invitation of this text is to imperfection and to be willing to share that with each other in spaces that are safe, to be more vulnerable with each other. I think a second invitation of this text is the invitation of Tamar to be bold and brave and maybe even with a little bit of humor and playfulness to call each other out to live more faithfully and more in the way that God made us to live. Now, I want to put a little bit of a disclaimer around this because sometimes I think we're really quick to want to jump to calling people out. <laughs> but Tamar does this in relationship. She has relationship here. She is deeply invested. She's invested because she is right now a burden on her family. She has a relationship both with her deceased husband, husbands, and with her father-in-law. She's not calling this out from afar. She is highly invested. And she does this in a really vulnerable way. She puts herself into a vulnerable, she gets herself into the mess of the circumstance. And then the other key thing that Tamar does is she challenges Judah in a way that has an invitation for him to be part of the solution. She leaves a relational way forward for Judah. And in fact, she and Judah will now become the ancestors of David and Jesus. These sons that she will bear, they're gonna be the, they're gonna be the ancestors of the most important line. They're gonna be named in the genealogy in Matthew. They're gonna have kind of the greatest honor that you could as a son of Israel. It's not Joseph's line, it's Judah and Tamar. And these two things go together. As the people of God, we need to be willing to share with each other our mistakes, our imperfections. We need to be willing to be honest about those things. And with bravery and kindness and creativity, we need to also be brave enough to say, hey, I think maybe you should look at this again. And we need to be able to hear that. And I think only when we practice that together as God's people, as the church, with one another, do we have the right to try and say something to the world. We have to practice with each other first. We have to be willing to do this with each other first, to admit our mistakes and call each other out. I think the church has just jumped ahead and wanted to say, like, we're gonna call out all these bad things that we see in the world. <laughs> 
We haven't even been willing to do that together. I'm gonna close with one story, which admittedly is just a really cool story. (laughs) However, it kept coming to mind as I was preparing this because I think it gives us a little bit of a vision, an imagination for how the church could interact with the world. So this is the story. Um, It's happened during the Morocco independence movement um, in the Western Sahara region where the people there wanted to have their independence um, from the Moroccan government. And the Moroccan government was really cracking down on them. um, And whenever they would protest for their independence, people would be jailed and not treated nicely. But the independence movement spiked during 2005 to 2008. And during that time, it was illegal to fly the flag of the independence movement. And the flag meant a lot to the protesters. Um, When a prominent protester was killed, they draped his coffin with the flag. It was the sign of everything that they cared about, everything they were fighting for, everything they longed for in their lives. This flag was the symbol of those things. And so they decided during this protest movement to have a demonstration of flying the flag. And they let everybody know about it. Um, They did not keep it a secret, so the riot police knew exactly when and where to show up. But when they showed up, they found that the protesters had essentially rounded up a whole bunch of feral cats, tied flags to them, and let them loose in the city. So now, the riot police had the choice. Do we go and arrest a whole bunch of cats? Or do we admit that maybe this rule is a little bit silly? Do you see that it's a challenge, but it's also an invitation? I wonder, could our church be a little bit more like that? But I think to get there, we have to be willing to do it with each other. And I fully acknowledge what I'm saying is super hard. I do not like showing people the ways that I've messed up. I definitely don't like people telling me how I've messed up. But here's the thing. Um, One of the things my seminary professor, one of my favorite professors used to say over and over was, Jesus didn't say, think about me. He said, follow me. And I'm here to tell you, I'm way more comfortable thinking about Jesus than I am following in the way of Jesus. And I actually think the church in America is way more comfortable thinking about Jesus than following. But there may be some power in thinking about Jesus here together, but the far greater power is if you and I, we choose to follow. That is what will change the world. The people of God following, even when it's hard, in the way of Jesus. Please pray with me. Father God, you have invited all of us here to live boldly. You've said that everyone here, though we are not perfect, we are deeply, deeply loved and valuable. I pray that you would teach us to be willing to be imperfect.
and to see what you'll do with your imperfect but deeply loved church. Amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.